You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 385th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we finished setting the stage for the start of the Tullahoma campaign. It's important to keep in mind that as the Tullahoma operation kicked off in Tennessee on June 24, 1863, Momentous events were also occurring in other theaters of the war. Right. In the east, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia completed its crossing of the Potomac River and moved its lead elements up into Pennsylvania. And then, out along the Mississippi River, two federal armies had their Confederate adversaries locked in sieges at the critical riverside fortresses of Vicksburg and Port Hudson. All four of those campaigns and operations, Port Hudson, Vicksburg, Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, and Tullahoma, would reach their culmination during the first 10 days of July 1863, and collectively would mark a key military turning point in the Civil War. In the early hours of Tuesday, June 23rd, William Rosecrans gave orders for the preparatory movements prior to the general advance of the Federals' Army of the Cumberland. With the Confederates manning a long defensive line across a wide front amidst the steep hills and narrow passes of Middle Tennessee's Highland Rim, Rosecrans had devised a plan to feint west while marching the bulk of his army eastward around the rebel position to threaten and then capture the enemy supply depot and base at Tullahoma. Rosecrans believed this turning movement would force his opponent, Braxton Bragg, to fight or flee and result in a disaster for the Confederates' Army of Tennessee. Like Rosecrans, Bragg had spent the months since the Battle of Stones River preparing for the renewal of full-scale hostilities. The Confederate commander had to spread his smaller army across a wide front and defend four mountain passes. From west to east, Guy's Gap, Bell Buckle Gap, 
Liberty Gap, and Hoover's Gap. Bragg's reading of the terrain convinced him that the Federals had two likely approaches. They could come through Guy's Gap and Bell Buckle Gap to Shelbyville, which anchored the rebel left flank. Or the Yankees could take a less arduous route west of the passes. With Leonidas Polk's Confederate Corps dug in at Shelbyville and William Hardee's Corps along the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad at Wartrace, that meant Guy's, Bell Buckle, and Liberty Gaps were covered. Bragg thought Hoover's Gap to the east was too long and narrow for the Federals to risk getting bottled up there. In any case, whichever way the Yankees moved, Bragg counted on his cavalry screen, Nathan Bedford Forrest Division on the far left and Joseph Wheeler's Corps on the far right to keep him apprised of what the enemy was up to. But, as it turned out, Bragg would be badly let down by his cavalry. Forrest on the left, new to the job of acting like a real cavalryman, interpreted the Federal feint as the enemy's main thrust. While Wheeler, a trained cavalry officer, was caught in the process of pulling his horsemen completely off Bragg's right flank and transferring them westward in order to launch his own attack on the Yankees' base at Nashville. Forrest might be excused some blame. After all, he was new to regular Army cavalry operations and was also recovering from a recent wound suffered in a dispute with a subordinate. However, Wheeler's bad timing meant that Rosecrans' real advance through Hoover's Gap went unreported at Confederate headquarters for nearly 48 hours. All in all, unfortunately for Bragg, the information the rebel cavalry provided to him during the Tullahoma campaign was usually both too late and incorrect. Although preliminary movements had begun the day before, the official start of the campaign saw Rosecrans' columns marching out of Murfreesboro at 7 a.m. on Wednesday, June 24th. Sending his cavalry west and south toward Shelbyville, Old Rosie then sent Major General Alexander McCook's 20th Corps against Guy's and Liberty Gaps. A third wing, Major General Thomas Crittenden's 21st Corps, headed southeast toward Bradyville. Rosecrans hoped Bragg would guess Shelbyville, on the Confederate left, was the Federals' objective, while viewing the thrust toward Bradyville, to the east, as merely a feint. That way, Bragg would keep his attention on his left. Rosecrans' attempt at deception was aided by the fact Wheeler had already transferred most of his Confederate horsemen to the west, repositioning them around Shelbyville, and thus leaving behind only a single rebel cavalry division to patrol the entire Confederate right flank. Exactly. At any rate, Bragg took the bait, believing the Federalist feint toward Shelbyville on the Confederate left was the real thing. He never suspected that Rosecrans' actual target was Hoover's Gap and the road that ran through it to Manchester behind the rebel right. 
The distance from Murfreesboro to Manchester through Hoover's Gap and Matt's Hollow was 34 miles. An enemy holding Manchester would be only 12 miles from Bragg's headquarters and supply base at Tullahoma, and just 15 miles from the Confederate Army's lifeline, the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad Bridge that crossed the Elk River at Allisonia. Speed and surprise were key to Rosecrans' plan. Having done all he could to convince Bragg that Shelbyville was the real federal target and that the move toward Bradyville was just a feint, Rosecrans sent Major General George Thomas's 14th Corps driving toward lightly defended Hoover's Gap. Thomas's column was spearheaded by Colonel John Wilder's 1,500 mounted infantrymen armed with their seven-shot Spencer repeating rifles. Thomas's 14th Corps, moving down the macadamized Manchester Pike, made first contact with the enemy about seven miles outside Murfreesboro. Reynolds' division led the march, followed by the divisions of Rousseau and Negley. Brannon's division brought up the rear. Wilder's mounted infantry brigade rode at the front of the Corps' column with orders to secure the entrance to Hoover's Gap. 33-year-old Colonel John T. Wilder was an unorthodox officer. The previous fall, though devoid of pre-war military training or experience, the Indiana businessman had ably and courageously defended Munfordville, Kentucky during Bragg's invasion of the Bluegrass State. As you guys may recall, when the Confederates brought up overwhelming force and demanded his surrender, Wilder, who had no friendly federal professional officer on hand to consult, went over the lines under a flag of truce to talk the matter over with Confederate General Simon Bolivar Buckner, since Buckner was a professional officer and Wilder believed an honorable man. Well, based on the insights from that conversation with Buckner, Wilder surrendered. Wilder was exchanged two months later and was soon back in service. He pushed aggressively to secure permission to have his new infantry brigade of three Illinois and two Indiana regiments not only mounted but armed with Spencer seven-shot repeating rifles. Such innovative thinking appealed to Rosecrans, and eventually Wilder's brigade possessed not only significant advantages in mobility and firepower, but also very high morale. Wilder believed his men could lick the world, and his men were inclined to agree. However, Rosecrans and Thomas weren't asking Wilder and his men to lick the world on June 24th. They were just asking them to lick only as many Confederate cavalrymen as might be covering Hoover's Gap. Well, as it turned out, the rebels covering the approaches to the Gap belonged to the 1st Kentucky Cavalry Regiment, CSA. The Kentuckians were on picket duty north of the entrance to the Gap. Their assignment was to provide warning of a federal movement down the Manchester Pike and delay the Yankees long enough for Confederate infantrymen to come up from their nearby bivouacs and occupy the strong earthworks in Hoover's Gap itself. 
Two Confederate infantry brigades under Bushrod Johnson and William Bate were camped four miles away at Fairfield, which meant they'd have an hour and a half to two-hour march to reach the gap. The rebel defensive plan depended on good staff work and coordination to be successful, but both of these were in short supply given the current command climate in the Army of Tennessee. Troops were also hard to come by, and Hardy had already complained about his line being too long for the forces at hand. The morning of the 24th, Wilder's mounted infantry encountered the enemy seven miles down the road from Murfreesboro. Wilder's men skirmished with the Kentuckians while waiting for Reynolds' infantry division to come up. But once the foot soldiers caught up, Wilder pushed his column forward with the 72nd Indiana out front. It was the start of a remarkable series of events that, before the day was out, would see Wilder's men earn for themselves one of the most famous nicknames of the entire war, the Lightning Brigade. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Up to this point, things hadn't really begun to go wrong for the 1st Kentucky Confederate Cavalry. They'd detected the enemy's approach, forced him to deploy, skirmished briefly with what they believed to be a significant force of Yankee foot soldiers, and now they were pulling back, which is what horsemen were supposed to do when confronted with infantry. By all the normal rules, they should reach Hoover's Gap well ahead of the Federal foot slaughters. Then they would have the advantages of position and terrain working for them, so that they shouldn't have any trouble holding off the enemy advance until the Confederate infantry came up to support them. Of course, normal rules didn't take into account Wilder and his brigade's significant advantage in mobility and firepower, and the Kentuckians soon found themselves in a horse race. 
Well, since Wilder's horses had been eating a good deal better, and the Federals had those Spencer repeaters, the Kentuckians lost this running fight and were soon scattering in all directions, seeking cover, and wondering what this war was coming to, with Yankee infantry units suddenly transforming themselves into powerful cavalry formations. With Wilder's men hot on their heels, the 1st Kentucky went entirely to pieces, even losing their colors to the hard-charging Federals. What had been a regiment of Confederate cavalry had all but ceased to exist, without having either delayed the enemy advance, or sending warning to headquarters or supporting units. That meant the rebel infantry bivouacked nearby would learn of the federal threat only when fleeing Kentuckians suddenly appeared and spread the alarm. At any rate, having arrived at the northern entrance to Hoover's Gap after his miles-long chase of the routed Kentuckians, John Wilder now mulled over what to do with his success. Well, thanks to some of the enemy horsemen who had failed to make good their escape and were now his prisoners, Wilder knew about the nearby Confederate Brigade of Infantry. Wilder realized that if that enemy force was allowed the time to react and move up and man the earthworks in the gap, it could easily delay the advance of Thomas's entire corps. And so, even though his own infantry supports were some six miles back, having been unable to keep up with his running fight with the fleeing Kentuckians, Wilder decided to get to the far end of the gap as quickly as possible and hold that position until the Federal foot soldiers arrived on the scene. He would report, quote, I directed the advance to push speedily forward and take possession of Hoover's Gap, and, if possible, to prevent the enemy from occupying their fortifications. John Wilder reported, quote, My whole command was rapidly moved forward to the southern extremity of the gap, and while being placed in position, we heard the long roll sounded in the rebel camp, two miles down Garrison Fork. That faint sound of rebel drummers summoning troops to quickly form up was coming from the camp of Bates' brigade. William Bate was the junior brigadier general in the Confederates' Army of Tennessee. You see, a month earlier, when a substantial number of men from the Army were transferred to Mississippi, a partial reorganization had taken place, because Braxton Bragg had preferred to keep the Tennessee brigades of the transferred divisions here in their home state, where he expected they would fight with higher morale. Well, the loose brigades had been consolidated into a new division under a newly promoted major general, 41-year-old native Tennessean Alexander Stewart. It would become an excellent fighting division. Stewart was a West Point classmate of William Rosecrans. He was highly capable and would end the war as a lieutenant general, but this was Stewart's first campaign in division command, 
and his inexperience would show. Then 36-year-old William Bate was ambitious and driven. Before the war, he had gone from steamboat clerk to newspaper editor to politician. And since the start of the war, he had risen from private to brigadier general, and within a few months would vault from being the Army of Tennessee's junior brigadier to being its junior major general. However, like Stuart, Bate was new to his job, having returned to the Army from a long convalescence after being wounded at Shiloh. He was too late to take part in the Battle of Stones River, and here at Hoover's Gap he would be leading a brigade into battle for the first time, and everything seemed to be working against him. For one thing, he and many of the other officers of his brigade were several miles from camp at a picnic when word first arrived from panicked cavalrymen that the Federals were coming through the gap. It took time for couriers to find the missing officers, and then for the officers to get back to camp. Then, Bate had only the sketchiest information about the enemy's present whereabouts, since the Federals were variously reported by civilians and fleeing cavalrymen to be practically everywhere. As a result, Bate felt he had little choice but to detach a couple of regiments to cover routes the Yankees might possibly take depending on who they were and what they were after. Then with the remainder of his brigade, about half of it, he went looking for the Federals, doing the job the rebel cavalry should have done. Well, Bate found Wilder's men waiting for him just on the Confederate side of Hoover's Gap, along a ridge of high ground covering the Gap's southern entrance. William Bate was a fighter, so he pitched into the Yankees without further ado. He hit Wilder head-on, was driven back by the concentrated fire of the Spencers, then tried to flank the Federals, and failed there, too. The hail of lead fired from the repeating rifles gave the defenders a significant advantage. One of the Hoosiers said simply, quote, We went at it shooting. Well, finally, with nearly a quarter of his men down, Bate had to pull back, and he did some fairly ineffective shelling of the Yankee positions then. But Wilder's five regiments were supported by Captain Eli Lilly's Indiana battery, and Lilly's battery successfully dueled with the Confederate guns. By the time the Federal foot soldiers came up, the crisis had already passed. At a cost of 61 men dead and wounded, Wilder had captured Hoover's Gap and held it until the 14th Corps Infantry arrived on the scene. The Federal Infantry came up as it was nearing sundown, although no one had seen the sun for most of the day. One of the Confederate officers described it as a quote-unquote dark and rainy day, and by mid-afternoon the rain was coming down in sheets. Sloshing through the mud about 6 p.m. came the wet and bedraggled men of Bushrod Johnson's Confederate Brigade, accompanied by Stuart himself. They were there to support Bates' troops, but by that time there was little Stuart could do, since on the other side of the lines, 
Reynolds' division had come up and made the federal position secure beyond doubt, and elements of Rousseau's division were also arriving on the scene. Generals Thomas and Rosecrans visited Hoover's Gap that evening. The usually reserved George Thomas gushed to John Wilder, saying, quote, You have saved the lives of a thousand men by your gallant conduct today. I didn't expect to get this gap for three days. End quote. And the next day, in recognition of its quick and decisive actions on June 24th, George Thomas said Wilder's outfit should henceforth be known as the Lightning Brigade. Six miles to the west, at Liberty Gap, the story on June 24th was not much different. There, as McCook's 20th Corps column advanced from Murfreesboro, it made contact with the two Arkansas regiments then currently picketing the Gap. In some sharp fighting, the Federals of McCook's lead division, commanded by Brigadier General Richard Johnson, pushed forward, roughly handling the Arkansans from St. John Little's Brigade of Patrick Claiborne's division. By evening, the Yankees had pushed a half mile beyond the southern entrance to the Gap, and though the balance of Little's Brigade had finally come up, splashing through the mud and driving rain, there was nothing more for the Confederates to do. Johnson summed up the day's action from the Federal perspective, saying, quote, The rebels were driven at every point, and Liberty Gap was in our possession. Oh, thus ended the first stage of the Tullahoma campaign, scarcely 15 hours after it began. On the night of June 24th, William Rosecrans evaluated the situation and issued his orders for the next day. Despite the rain, which was troublesome, the first day of the campaign had been a good one for the Army of the Cumberland. Thomas's 14th Corps and McCook's 20th Corps had managed to pierce the Army of Tennessee's shield along the Highland Rim at Hoover's Gap and Liberty Gap. Braxton Bragg had been caught flat-footed, but Rosecrans, concerned about a possible rebel strike from Guy's Gap or a counterattack against Thomas, decided to cons consolidate his gains before pushing farther. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. But instead of a book recommendation, we actually have a magazine recommendation for you this time. Yep. Uh, in the late, sometimes great, North and South Magazine, issue number two, from way back in January 1998, there's an excellent article titled, A Fight or a Foot Race, The Tullahoma Campaign. Uh, by a gentleman whose last name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, since there's a 100% certainty I'd mangle it beyond recognition. But at any rate, this is an excellent look at Tullahoma in North and South Magazine, issue number two. Uh, 
the old North and South back issues are actually available digitally online. In fact, it looks like they've started back up with new issues here at some point recently, but we haven't checked any of that out. If you have, drop us a line and let us know what's going on there. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book and magazine recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. It's been a while between new episodes, so we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support of the podcast. So thank you to Tyler S., Raymond A., Jonathan R., Tom S., Damian K., and Roger B. Brian C., Ken K., Alexander K., J.P., and Richard F. Patrick Brendan H., Cody R., Tim B., Ian J., Dan W., and Alan G. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the start and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.